You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians 8, 1-7, where the Apostle Paul is speaking about the gift being given to the church at Jerusalem through the saints in Asia and Asia Minor. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us in keeping with God's will. So he urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Then we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. As we continue our series of sermons on the letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, the first letter, we've come to chapter 16, and this morning we look at the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, It is a most gratifying thing to go out and to go about in this congregation here in Langley and to discover that so many of you are reaching out to help one another. Daily I experience the fact that the sick are being visited, 
The sorrowful are being comforted. The lonely are invited over. The troubled are offered help. Many of you are thinking about others and their needs. But you're doing more than just thinking. You're also assisting in many different, considerate, and various kinds of ways. And that's great. Maybe you don't hear it too often from this pulpit, but you are to be complimented. And you are to be commended. You are actively using the gifts and the talents as well as the blessings that God has given you in the service of others. And then, of course, I realize this isn't being done perfectly. There's always room for improvement. But still, also from this pulpit, it's good to acknowledge your love and your care for one another, as well as to encourage you to keep it up. Our theology may be great, but it's not worth much if it's not being put to work in concrete ways of showing love, mercy, and kindness. The congregation of Jesus Christ needs to be valiant for the truth, but it also needs to live and to demonstrate that truth every day. And you know, beloved, that's also what the Apostle Paul very much wanted for the Corinthian church. He wanted God's people there to grow in truth as well as in the implementation of the truth. He wanted to see a living, active church of Jesus Christ. In other words, he wanted to see a congregation doing the Lord's work. Yes, and that's also the theme for this morning's sermon, as well as service, a service made special by the baptisms of Ryan and Matthew, as well as by the public profession of faith of Jocelyn Knapp. So I preached to this morning on the following theme, doing the Lord's work. We shall see this means addressing pressing needs, organizing pastoral work, and finally offering personal encouragement. Well, beloved, we have come here to the last chapter of Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. And as in so many last chapters of his epistles or letters, this one too is all about wrapping things up and includes a number of leftover items as well as a few comments and instructions about fellow workers and and helpers and so forth. And now as you can read very clearly, one of the leftover items has to do with a certain collection. Our text refers to a collection for God's people. Literally, it says a collection for the saints or the holy ones. And so what's this all about? Well, beloved, it's about the saints in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Romans 15. You can read about it as well in the rest of 2 Corinthians 8 as well as 2 Corinthians 9. Apparently, the church in Jerusalem was in serious trouble. First, it was a very poor church, and also it was very much a persecuted church. Life was hard for the believers in Jerusalem. Yes, and once the Apostle Paul became aware of this, and some of the saints outside of Jerusalem heard about it too, they decided that something needed to be done about it. So what should they do? 
Well, they decide that a special collection should be organized, that a relief mission should be launched, that all of the churches should come to the help of the church in Jerusalem. And that's apparently what happened. Wherever Paul went, he brought the gospel and he taught the saints, but he also told them about their suffering, brothers and sisters, back in Jerusalem. And the response, it was most favorable. Never mind that those believers were Jews and most of them were Gentiles. Never mind the fact that Jewish Christians had for quite some time made it rather difficult for Gentile Christians to get into the church. Never mind the fact that these believers live far away in Jerusalem at the other end of the Mediterranean. Never mind that all of them also often had difficulties making their own ends meet. Now they wanted to help. Even out of their scarcity, as you can read about the Macedonians, they wanted to help. Now, why is that so? Why do they want to help? What explains their sudden bout of generosity? After all, the world in which they lived was not this way. In the Greco-Roman world of which they were a part, charity was not at all regarded as a virtuous act or as a divine duty. No, when you went out of your way to help other people that had nothing to do with a soft spot in your heart, but it had everything to do with winning the praise of men. That was how you increased your social standing. That was how you showcased your personal virtue. That is how you inflated your reputation. And so what motivated most ancient acts of charity? Not compassion, but ego. And let's face it, that's still with us today. Rich people give large sums of money sometimes to any number of worthy causes, not because their hearts are moved with pity, but because they want their egos stroked. Pictures in newspapers, compliments of others, an inflated reputation. That's what moves them and drives them. But you know, that's not what drove the saints in Asia Minor. They were led to give first because they recognized a certain spiritual special debt. Paul mentions it in Romans 15 when he writes, For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Gentile Christians need to realize that Jewish Christians were there first. They were God's people before them. Excuse me for saying, but we're all a bunch of Johnny-come-latelys. But you know, if there is a recognition of a certain spiritual indebtedness here, 
There's also something else. There's a real sense of compassion, of love, and of caring. Christian giving is, I dare say, not motivated by ego, but by compassion. We do it not because of what we get out of it, but because that's part and parcel of our calling, our our life, the very fiber of our Christian being. But then at the same time realize and realize well that all of this doesn't come naturally. Now both this recognition of indebtedness as well as this compassion are not homegrown qualities. Christians are not more compassionate by nature. Christian charity is not a sign of innate superiority. In and of ourselves, we are not one ounce, one gram, better than anyone else in the world. No, beloved, we have to say that all of this is due to the work of the triune God. The Father who adopts us and the Father who adopts these children as heirs. The Son who washes us from our sins. The Spirit who dwells in us. Make us so. The God of baptism and profession makes us so. Even more specifically, the Holy Spirit makes us so. He makes us living members. He renews our lives. He fills our lives with fruits like love and joy and peace, but also compassion. He moves our hearts to give. And the Apostle Paul knows this. He knows that the spirit of compassion is at work among the Corinthians Earlier they had agreed to give, and what remains are now the organizational details. And you can find them in verse 2 and following. And as one commentator states, it was done with no pressure, no gimmicks, no emotion. In addition, as you look at these verses, you also meet some helpful principles here that This giving is to be done regularly on the first day of the week. It is to be done universally, each one of you. It is to be done systematically, set aside or save up. It is to be done proportionately in keeping with his income. And finally, the Apostle Paul makes arrangements for how the money is going to be taken to Jerusalem. If feasible, some men will even accompany him. So, beloved, what you get here, if you look at it for a moment, is you get here a picture of a church in action. And once again, once again, it's something that should make us reflect on the measure of our charity as well as the way that we function. As a church. 
Are we so wrapped up with ourselves, with our own wants, desires, and, and wishes that we, we turn our backs on the needs of others? Do the needs of fellow saints still move us, whether they're in the next door or in the next town or the next province or around the world? Beloved, what the Apostle Paul is saying here under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is that the pressing needs of others should move us first to compassion and then to action. A generous and loving God wants a generous and loving people. He didn't make you into a bunch of cheapskates, a bunch of penny pinchers, bunch of selfish individualists. He makes you into a caring, concerned, compassionate body. His people are a generous people. Look first to the interests of others. But then, beloved, in our text, God also desires something else. He desires a people filled with bravery, respect, and Christ. Do you find that in the verses 5 to 12 that now follow? First, there is Paul and there is the matter of bravery. You know, in the verses 5 to 9, he tells the Corinthians about his hopes and his, his plans. He, he includes a, a trip to Macedonia, then a visit to Corinth and In addition, he wants to stay with them for some time. He doesn't just want to make it a short weekend visit. And no doubt he wants to stay there for some time because there's work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done, as you may know, in the church of Corinth. But in the meantime, he says that he needs to stay in Ephesus a little longer. And why? And notice Paul gives a curious answer. He says, because a great door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. Now, I don't think that's what we expect to hear. We expect him to say that because there is a door of effective work open to him, there are now many, many people who support him. But that's not the case. In Ephesus, the work is going well. The work is effective precisely because it is meeting with so much resistance and opposition. How can that be? Is Paul not mistaken? Absolutely not. But you need to understand, beloved, there is a sense in which Hostility is no hindrance at all to the spread of the gospel. That's what we almost automatically think. But you know, evangelism and outreach, mission work flourishes under fierce opposition. And if you think of it, isn't that a universal truth? When does the Christian church really grow? When it is resisted, when it is maligned, when it is opposed, when it is persecuted and oppressed. Think of the early centuries. 
more the Roman emperors tried to eradicate it, the more it grew. Think of more modern times. Think of the communists, whether in Russia or Soviet Union, as it used to be called, or behind the Iron Curtain of Eastern Europe, or whether it be in China or North Korea. Lots of oppression. But at the same time, lots of growth as well. Christians not only know that there will be tough times, but they also do well in tough times. And as parents, we need to remind our children of that too. And as professing members, we should not overlook the fact that God has a way of using us, equipping us, Strengthening us, perhaps more than ever before, in unusual and difficult times. But then, beloved, in the verses 5 to 12, the Apostle Paul not only speaks about himself and bravery or courage, he also speaks about Timothy and respect in the verses 10 and 11. It seems that, that Timothy expected to get a rough ride from the church at Corinth. No doubt he's afraid they're not going to respect him because as you can read elsewhere in the New Testament, he's rather young. And Paul therefore tells the Corinthians to treat him with care and consideration. See to it that he has nothing to fear. Send him on his way in peace. You know, it happened then and it happens today. And not all of God's workers and all of God's people are equally skilled and able when it comes to handling the affairs of the church. All of us have weaknesses. Some of us have more weaknesses than others. Some even make a real mess in the church. But then also, let's not forget that churches are not pure and spotless either. In Paul's day, as well as in our own day, there are some churches that are hard to pastor. Some even specialize in having roast pastor for lunch. And Corinth appears to have been like that. And that's why Paul warns them. He warns them to treat those who work in the Lord among them with respect as well as with consideration. And surely that too is a reminder to us. It talks about spiritual climate, does it not? The spiritual climate in which we want our children to grow and in which we want our newly professed members to take flight is one in which members and pastors and workers acknowledge a common need for grace and in which they never stop helping each other, being patient with one another, and caring for one another. What Paul wants the Corinthians to do for Timothy, God wants the saints to do for one another. And so thus far the apostle has mentioned himself, he's mentioned Timothy, 
There's one more name that pops up here in these verses, and that is Apollos. Apollos, a rather interesting name and appears to have been a rather interesting personality. We don't know a lot about him. We do know he was a rather gifted speaker and that more than a few members of the church in Corinth were enamored with him. He even had a party named after him. Remember way back in chapter 1? Peter party, a Paul party, a Christ party, and you had an Apollos party. And now this man is coming to Corinth in due time. But again, beloved, we should be, and we can be sure that he's not coming there to, to stir up trouble, nor is he coming there to promote his particular party. But when he comes, he will come as a faithful servant of the Lord. And in the process, he's not going to play the game of favoritism. He will give them a healthy focus. And that focus is none other than Christ. In Acts 18, we read, interestingly, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Apollos specialized in teaching Christ. That's what we read in Acts 18. And Paul says, hopefully you Corinthians will let him do that. And you know, here's also something that every church should long for. It should long for leaders and for members who together have Really, when it comes right down to it, when you remove everything, all of the veneer and varnish have only one aim, and that aim is Christ. Together we should be students of Christ. Together we should be communicating Christ. Together we should be filled with fervor for Christ. He's what it's all about. It's because of him that we're here. And without him, we might as well go home. Everything is about Christ and the church of Christ. And as believers, we need to keep sight of that. Don't let the first and the primary thing get lost in all the activities and all the discussions, and all the debates. And that's just about all, beloved, except not quite. You know, having reminded the believers in Corinth uh, about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, and having told them about supporting and helping and encouraging one another, Paul has something else to say. It's a series of commands. You might even say a list of expectations. First, he says, be on your guard, or be watchful. The language is here, the language of the military. It's as if he's addressing soldiers, and one of the more boring duties that soldiers have is guard duty. You stand there hour after hour, day after day, night after night, good weather, bad weather, and so often nothing happens. A certain monotony creeps in and you're inclined to let down your guard and become less and less vigilant. 
Well, the same, Paul says, sometimes happens to us as Christians. We have a calling to be on our guard. And what are we to guard? Well, the Apostle Paul says over and over again, especially to Timothy, you're to guard the deposit. You're to guard the gospel. You're to guard the revelation of Almighty God. And you're to guard it against all kinds of attacks. Yes, and that's also part of our duty. For the longest time, we may see nothing. And before you know it, we may be falling asleep. And then suddenly we wake up and we realize, oh, this particular teaching has suddenly crept in. Where did it come from? How does it jive with Scripture? It doesn't. What's it doing here? And so quickly it can affect our belief system. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, stand firm, stand fast in the faith. How often don't you hear that command in the New Testament? Time and time again we are reminded that being in the faith is also a matter of standing firm, standing fast, being rooted and anchored, sticking to the truth and nothing but the truth. Yes, and surely that's a pertinent reminder to all of us. Not just for Jossie, it's not just for Ryan, not just for Matthew. Not just for their parents, for all of us. We claim to be children of truth. And we hear the gospel of truth every Sunday and we read it throughout the week. It comes to us from the Lord of truth. We have a vested interest in the truth. And we're to stick to it. And you know where to do so, especially when all kinds of new stuff comes down the pike. And there's always new stuff. There's always someone inventing a new heresy or a new divergent teaching. There's always someone else who claims to have a brilliant, new, radical, unearthly insight. Beloved, no matter what comes at you, whether it be new about the triune God, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, whether it be new about Paul or the law, faith or works, spiritual gifts and abilities, you name it, stand your ground. And realize you can only do so if you're firmly rooted in the Scriptures of God. If there are a lamp unto your feet and a light to your path every day. And as well, if you stand firmly rooted in the creeds and the confessions of the, of the Christian church, you all know them. You've been taught them. The apostles, the Nicene, the Athanasian, the Belgian, the Heidelberg, the Canons of Dune. Stand firm in the truth. And of course, some will say, well, that's, that's old stuff. Never mind. Age doesn't matter. Truth does. 
And others will say, that's boring stuff. We've heard it before. Never mind. It's only boring to those who have allowed themselves to fall out of touch with it. For more than 30 years, I have been busy with the gospel. And you think that if anybody should be bored with the gospel, it's me. I work with it every week. Every day. And it's more living and actual every day of my life. That also goes for you. Like the word of God, the sword of the spirit. It's never old. It's never boring. And it's never irrelevant either. It speaks to all the situations and all the needs in life. It never loses its power. It doesn't need to change. It still shapes and molds human hearts and minds. One realize that if you're on guard and if you stand fast, of course, you will catch more than your share of flack. You will need to be, as Paul says, people of courage. You'll need to be strong. In other words, Paul recognizes well that those to the, who hold themselves to the truth of the gospel will feel the heat. The world will mock you. Your own flesh will tempt you. The devil will assail you. Why are you so old-fashioned? Why are you hung up on those ancient ideas and values? Why not explore your new freedom in Christ? And why stick to the doctrines of grace? The temptation is always there to compromise, to revamp, to whittle away at it, to get with a radically new agenda. But you know, beloved, Paul says, don't. Stand your biblical ground. Screw up your confessional courage. Be like the martyrs of old who refused to bend the gospel. Yes, and as you do, remember one last thing. Remember to do it all in love. Don't Get into the dirt of those who want to dirty you. Don't take over the language and the tactics of the enemy. Don't opt for the low and the nasty ground or for the high and the uppity ground. No, stick to the true ground. And that's love. Paul wrote about it back in chapter 13. Put it into practice. Oh, beloved, need we say more? Is this not enough food for thought for all of us? If Tim and Petra, if Henry and Brandy need to be reminded about how to raise and to nurture their sons, here's as good a place as any to begin. Teach them the truth of the gospel. Familiarize them with the great truths of the reform faith. And model a faith for them and before them. A faith that's real, genuine, warm, powerful, and gracious.
And as for you, Jossie, the words of verse 13 and 14 are truly fitting. As a matter of fact, they're fitting for all of us and they're fitting for anyone who professes their faith in Christ. Be on your guard. Stand firm. Be a woman of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Live a firmly anchored life. Test everything. Take only over that which harmonizes with the truth of the gospel. And do it all in love. Sincere, sacrificial, serving love. And the congregation, keep on serving one another. As you serve the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.